Well, good morning, church. It's good to be here with you today, as always. And I do find it an honor to open God's Word and see what He has to say today. Uh, so with that, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter. That's where we're going to be. 2 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to be in verses 3 to 11 today. So that's 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses 3 to 11. Today we're going to ponder on the nature of the Christian life. Or really the nature of the Christian walk. And once we are found to be in Christ, what are we to do? This is the question. How does God go about changing us? Do we even need to change at all? Some might say. What we will find from this text as we look through verses 3 to 11 is that we have been given the power of God to follow the path of virtue in order to gain entrance into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So we're going to use this sentence, that we have been granted the power of God to follow the path of virtue in order to gain entrance into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And I have three points from this sentence. The first is we've been given the power of God. The second is we are to follow the path of virtue. And the third is we do this in order to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. So we're gonna walk through this summary sentence together uh, as we walk through the text and see what the Lord has for us. Let's read the text, then I'll pray, and then we'll just start making our way through it. It says this, 2 Peter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are very thankful for your word. I pray now that as we look through these passages and see what it has to say, you would speak through me. Anoint me with a spirit, I pray. I take any words that are not... Um, from you away, I pray, and we ask that you would save sinners and build up the church. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start a little bit with the context of what Second Peter is about. This is the second letter, obviously, that Peter is writing to this audience. And really what Peter is writing about primarily is that he is dealing with false teachers, as you'll see in chapter 2. Primarily what the false teachers were teaching is that they could live however they want because Christ was not going to come again. And what happens is Peter opens the letter 
after a salutation in verses 1 to 2, uh, with a quick sermon, you might say, on the path of virtue, reminding his audience of who they are and the essential outpouring of who they are in Christ. And this will then, later on in the letter, uh, serve to contrast what the false teachers were teaching and really how they were living. But what we're going to be focusing on is this sermon on what I call the path of virtue. So as we come to this text, we see that we have been given the power of God. This is our first point. We have been given the power of God. So let's look at verse 3. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His divine power has granted to us all things that contain to life and godliness. So whose power is this? This is the first question that we're going to ask as we look through these verses. And I believe it's talking about Christ. Obviously it's talking about God, but I think specifically this is Christ's divine power. In other words, Christ who has the power of deity because he is God. Uh, we look back and we see that in verse 2 it says, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, so I think the antecedent to his is Christ. It's talking about Christ's divine power. And notice that the power hasn't been taken by us. It's not something that we gain through our own means. No, it's been granted to us. We haven't gone out and achieved it. It's been given to us. The power is not ours to give away. It's not, we're not like a grandparent who gives a candy to a grandchild. That's not how this works, no. The power is Christ's, and it is he who grants it to us. And I think that plays an important role throughout this whole passage, that this isn't really our power, this is Christ's power. And what has he granted to us? Well, as we kind of walk through this, it says his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. First, let's look at how much he's given to us. How much has he granted to us? It's interesting that he says all things. He's granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He hasn't granted to us 50% of what pertains to life and godliness, not 25%. In fact, he hasn't even granted to us 99% but he has granted to us all things, 100% of what we need that pertains to life and godliness. So what we need to know as Christians, if we're in Christ, is that we are fully equipped by the divine power of Christ that we have all things that are granted to us that pertain to life and godliness. So what is this life and godliness? Well, life is the ability to live, we understand that this means that it is God or it is Christ who gives us the power to be alive at all, but it's not just talking about alive as I am talking to you right now. Um, obviously not dead, but alive, but I think we get a sense of this in Ephesians chapter two, and we look at Ephesians chapter two, verse one, and I'll just read it for you. You don't have to turn there, and it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And so I don't think this necessarily means um, life as I just live it day by day, though it, there is that sense for sure. I think that we're talking about how before we are in Christ, we are actually dead in our trespasses and sins. And then Ephesians 2.4 goes on to say, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. So the power to be alive at all comes from Christ. We have been awakened we have been quickened, uh, we have been made alive, we are no longer dead 
in our sin, but we are alive in Christ. I think that's the sense that we have in all things that pertain uh, to life. And then the next word, godliness. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life. And godliness can also be translated piety. This is living in such a way as to please God. In other words, living in a way that Christ is king in every aspect of your life, that God is real, and that God is real in every decision that you make. So we don't just ignore the fact that God is real and with us uh, for certain decisions in our life. No, what godliness is, is living in a way um, as if God is real because he is uh, in every single decision that we make. And in the end, it really is fleeing from sin as much as we can. So everything we need to be alive in Christ and live for him, that's what it's saying. So his divine power, that is Christ's divine power, has been granted to us, it's been given to us. It's not ours, it's been given. It's only ours because it has been given. And what's been given? Well, all things that pertain to being alive in Christ and then living to please God. This is what we have. This is from Charles Spurgeon, he says this. It is through knowing God that we realize that his divine power has bestowed on us all things that are necessary for life and godliness. For all these things are in him, and we know him, trust him, love him, become like him. We also come to possess all these precious things in him. Here we have then the fountain and source of our spiritual life. So Christ, in his divine power, the power that he has granted to us, has become our source and our fountain where all of what we need and what we have for our spiritual life comes from. But how does he impart this knowledge to us? Or how does he impart this power to us? Well, he goes on, and we can look at it here. Uh, The next part of verse three says this. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So through the knowledge of him who called us. So the knowledge of him who called us. This is the intimate knowledge of a friend. That's what it's talking about. The intimate knowledge of a friend. It's intimate and informed. And The knowledge being mentioned here isn't necessarily just knowing more about God, though that is important, and we're going to get into that a little bit later on in the text. But this is the knowledge that you have of a family member. This is the knowledge that you have of a friend who you've known your entire life. This is the knowledge of knowing someone intimately. And so what I think what we're looking at here is Peter talking about conversion. So through the knowledge of him, so knowing him in such a way that it saves us, or in other words, conversion, who has called us. And it's not merely a knowledge that is knowing more information. That might be a small part of it, but... It's a knowledge that is granted to us, as we saw before, in his divine power. It's a knowledge that comes to us when one is born again and is given new life. It's the knowledge given to us when we change and now have the ability to strive for godliness. But we are called to something. Knowledge of him who called us to what? Well, called us to his own glory and excellence. We are called to his glory. That is to show everyone that Christ is wonderful 
And really, Christ is everything. That's what glory is. Glory is to show the greatness of God in everything that we do. When we talk about Christ's glory, we talk about um, how awesome he is and how he is worthy of, of everything. And then it says excellence, or another way to translate excellence, as we'll see later on in the text, as it is translated differently, is virtue. So it could be translated um, to his own glory and virtue. We are to extol him as glorious and virtuous or excellent or perfect, and this is what we are called to. It's, it's a call to extol Christ as everything in the way we live our lives. So in his glory and excellence, well, what has he done? And, and what Peter does is he's walking step by step through this in a very logical way, and it says in verse four, by which he has granted to us his very great his precious, sorry, and very great promises. And again, notice it's granted, it's not taken. This is something given to us. It's not something that we go out and take. It's not something that we are able in our own power to take at all. No, this is something that again has been granted to us. But what have we been given? We've been given promises, but not just any promises. They're precious and very great promises. And in fact, what Peter does here is he doesn't say what the exact promises are that he's talking about. All we know from these promises is that they are precious and very great. But what he does do is he goes on to show what the promises entail. And that's the next line here. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that so here's what they entail, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So what does this mean? What is meant by um, divine nature? Well, some have taken this verse and they've twisted it to explain that we have become gods ourselves. We're part of the divine nature, part of what God is, his attributes, his divinity are now been placed on us and we are now gods. Well, this is not what the passage is saying. In fact, if you have anyone say that to you, well, um, that is a very, very dangerous thing to say. We are not God. Yes, we are made in the image of God, but we are not God. We are not part of God. Why? Because God is holy. He is set apart completely. He is completely set apart. And that's why it's so amazing that we have been made partakers of the divine nature. How is this possible? Well, it's through our union with Christ. We are given divine qualities that come from God alone, but that doesn't make us God. While they are not said, it is obvious from the next line that these qualities are what enable us to escape the corruption of the world. It's what quickens us. It's what makes us alive such that we can now choose not to sin. It's what makes us alive such that we can now glorify God truly. That is what it's talking about. And I mean, we can see that in the next line where it says this. So by which we, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through him you may become partakers of the divine nature. Then it says, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So the power that is granted to us is all the power that we need to understand and act on the promises of God that give us the power to flee from sin and live in a way that is pleasing to him. And again, it's granted to us because the rest of the thrust of 
the message that Peter is giving us is the amount of effort that we have to put forward. But before we get into the effort, we need to understand where the power comes from, and it's not within us. We need to be granted it by God, so we need to go to him and ask before we make every effort. To make every effort in our own power is foolishness, but to make every effort in the power of God is where virtue comes from. My family and I love to camp, and a few years back we went to a provincial park just over on Lake Huron, that was south of Port Elgin. Right beside the park, literally across the street, is the Bruce Power Plant. It's a massive site. You can drive for quite a while and you're still right beside it. That plant actually provides, it's a nuclear power plant, it provides 30% of Ontario's power into the grid, which is pretty impressive. Now, as we go into our houses, you'll notice that you have a wire that goes from the road, probably, um, into your house, and that powers all these things in your house. And there's some pretty impressive things we have now. Things that if you would go 200 years before, people would think that it's not just everyday appliances, but astounding. You have something you can plug into a wall, and what happens? Your food becomes cool, and it lasts a lot longer. It's called a refrigerator. You can freeze food to keep it for months and months later. It's amazing. But even though these have very specific purposes, right? You have a refrigerator that cools. We have all this technology, and it's amazing. You can freeze all your food. But what happens if the Bruce Power Plant were to go offline, and the power no longer is making its way through that wire, and it's not getting into your house? Well, you don't have a freezer anymore, do you? What do you have? I don't know. A big storage cabinet, maybe? A big cooler, perhaps, right? Unless you have a generator that you can turn on, which might be a good idea for some of you, I don't know. But when you no longer have power, these appliances that were designed to do something very specific and something very awesome without the power essentially become useless. They're just a big box taking up space. Your oven becomes a weirdly shaped kitchen cabinet. Your TV, an all-black piece of art, how amazing is that? All these things that are designed to do really amazing things without power become useless. And really, we're a little bit like these appliances. Without the power of God, when it comes to life and godliness, we are useless. We need his power to do anything when it pertains to life and godliness. We can't generate our own power for life and godliness any more than our freezer can generate its own power or our TVs can generate its own power. We need the power of God in our lives and that power comes only through faith and being born again and converted, having a knowledge of the truth, being converted into a new creature. Now the majority of the application for this sermon is gonna come later as we work our way through this path of virtue, but here it's appropriate to ask this question. Do you have the power of God? Do you have the knowledge of him who has called you? You see, we do live in a world of corruption, that's what the text says, a world of sinful desires. And in fact, you don't just live in it, ultimately you are a part of it, intimately a part of it. You are a sinner. You're not alive, but you are dead in your trespasses and you need the power of God to save you. So if you came here today, and you're not in Christ, you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, 
then the call for you today is that you need the power of God to save you. Repent of your sins. Put your faith in Jesus Christ who died on a cross on behalf of sinners and the power that we are talking about will be yours. Because if you're not found in Christ, then everything that I'm about to say from this point forward will be absolutely useless for you. You can make every effort to do these things, but if you don't have that power, it's like a fridge trying to cool without power. It's impossible. If you reject Jesus, then you are powerless against sin. You're powerless against doubt. You will see the corruption of the world as normal, but if you run to Jesus, you put your faith in him, then you will become partakers of the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world, living in a way that pleases God and truly worships him, which is the reason you were created. And so repent of your sins. Do it today, don't wait. Now we can do nothing without the power of God, that's what we're learning. But once we have the power of God, we do have a responsibility. Just because the power's been granted to us doesn't mean the responsibility now goes away. Oh, it's just God that does all the work. Yes, God does the work, but now that God has done the work, we have a responsibility that is quite obvious in this passage. There is a distinct reason that we have been given this power. In fact, Peter starts the next session, section with the line, for this very reason. And we are to follow the path of virtue. So as we look through our sentence and we see that we've been given the power of God, why? Well, it's to follow the path of virtue. For this very reason, what Peter's doing is talking about the section we just walked through. And then he says this, make every effort to supplement your faith. Now, I stress in the first section that everything's been granted to us. There's nothing we can do to gain it. But now that we have the power, notice that it's not a passive thing. We are told to make every effort. So there is a distinct responsibility that we have to seek after these things that we're about to go, go through. The Christian life is not a life that is an autopilot. The Bible does not characterize the Christian walk as one where you put your faith in Jesus and then life continues exactly as it did before. What the Bible characterizes conversion as a moment when everything changes. A moment when you look back and you think, how could have I lived like I did before? A moment when you look back and this is the most significant moment in your life. Why? Because everything changes. No. Once you receive all these things that pertain to life and godliness, we have to make every effort. It's not just half an effort. It's not just enough effort to get your small group off your back. It's not even a really good effort, right? It's every effort. Another way to say it would be earnestness or zeal. Have a zeal to do these things. Now, the word that the ESV translates next is supplement. Uh, the KJV says add, and the idea here is adding at your own expense. So even as we look at the text and we see, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement, supplement has within the word itself 
an aspect of this is going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. And again, it implies the effort of the believer. Once we have the power of God, our responsibility is to make every effort, every effort to supplement our faith. Well, what are we to add or what are we to supplement? Well, Peter gives us a virtue list or a list of things that we must aspire to. There are other lists in the Bible like this. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 being a famous one. But what we have here is an ascending step or a path of virtue that we are to follow. Now before we get into the list, we do notice there seems to be a progression. There seems to be a progression. While I think the first and the last are significant, I don't think the order is necessarily very significant. In other words, I don't think we need to come to this list thinking that we have to master one And then once we've mastered one, we move on to the next. And once we've mastered that one, we move on to the next. It's not necessarily working like that. This is a rhetorical device that was well known at the time that linked vices or virtues and the order really didn't matter. They're just linking them together as a whole. But what seems to be important to note is where it begins and where it ends. And this is especially true as the beginning is faith. This is where everything begins in the Christian walk. And the end is love, which is the prime virtue. So let's look at what Peter wants us to make every effort to add. Well, we're to begin with faith. This is the beginning of the Christian walk. We know it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So we trust Christ and his work on the cross alone for our salvation. We must have faith. It's where it all begins. Through faith, it's you are given the divine power where we are now able to make every effort. Well, faith is supplemented with virtue. And virtue, we've seen this word before already in this text. It's a word translated as excellence in verse three. So him who called us to his own glory and excellence, this is the exact same word in the Greek. It's an attribute of Christ. But I do think in this context, virtue is a good translation. The idea is moral excellence. We learn that faith without deeds is dead. That's what James says in James chapter two. When faith is true, virtue will follow. When faith is true, then moral excellence will be a progression that happens in your life. But here we note that it is an effort and we need to pursue it. We have to make every effort to do this. We must flee from sin. We must seek first the kingdom of God. Must run to Jesus and love him first and foremost and above all others and above everything else. This is our call as we look to see faith with virtue. Next it says virtue with knowledge. We're to add Virtue with knowledge. Now there's a different sense to this word knowledge as when we saw it before in verse three. Whereas in verse three we're talking about conversion and an intimate knowledge of Christ, meaning um, an intimate friend or a family member. Here, what it looks like in verse five and six is we're talking about the ability to discern the will of God and live accordingly. 
because we've already ascertained that we can't make every effort to have this knowledge because it's given by us by God in terms of conversion. And so what we're looking at here is the knowledge, in other words, the ability to discern the will of God and act accordingly. And how do we do this? Well, we do this by immersing ourselves in God's word. We do this through prayer. We do this through sitting at and learning from older saints and those who have been there before. We do this through attending church and partaking in the Lord's Supper. All these things are not only important, but are essential to the Christian life. This is where we gain a knowledge of God. This is how we understand not only what God's will is, but how we can live according to God's will. This is knowledge. As we work our way through this path, we see knowledge with self-control. Now, the ability to control oneself is important in the Christian walk as we put to death the old self and as we put on the new self. And it's interesting at this point that Peter is make, will make a direct contradiction um, with the false teachers that are happening in this point itself. So there's a few things I'm going to read from chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 3 says this. He's talking about uh, the false teachers. And it says, In their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. They have greed. They'll exploit them. They have no self-control. Second Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10 says this, again talking of these false teachers where the main brunt of the book is dealing with, says this, that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And then it says in verse 10, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And again, he's talking about those who follow the false prophets and the false prophets themselves. They indulge, they have no self-control. Second Peter 2.11, right after that, says this, whereas angels, through greater, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. And again, what we see is a person that absolutely lacks self-control. And it goes on. Needless to say, when you cannot control yourself, you are absolutely useless, as you will see. We need to control ourselves. We need to be able to say no to some things and yes to other things when we want to and when we don't want to. It goes on. Self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness is the ability to bear up under hard times. Another way to say it would be endurance. And trials can come in many forms. We can have illness. We can have loss of friendships. We can have trouble with finances. We can have death in our family and friends, persecution. Trial can come on many forms, but what we are called to do as Christians, no matter what comes our way, is to be steadfast, to endure, to endure to the end. This is what Spurgeon says again. He says this, so that we are able to endure the trial of 
cruel mockings or sharp pains or fierce persecutions or the unusual afflictions of this life, he is a poor Christian who has no powers of endurance. Christians should be hardy and steady, not flaky and faint-hearted. This is the call to follow Christ. But beyond just enduring trials, there's another aspect to steadfastness, and that's not flitting from one thing to the other. It's being steadfast. When you make a change, you think it through. You don't just run from one thing to the next, from one point of doctrine to the next, from one fad to the next. No, what is the call of a Christian? It's to be steadfast, to be steady, to endure. And that's what we're called to do. If you decide to make a change in what you believe and in your doctrine, uh, you should do not just a little research, but a lot of research. You should be reading the Bible and praying and not just running to and fro because maybe your favorite author is espousing it. We are, not, we are to be steadfast. It goes on, it says, steadfastness with godliness. Steadfastness with godliness. And again, we've seen this before, right? We've seen it in verse three. This is one of the things that Christ has granted us the power to do, and so it's not unusual to find it here. In fact, it's interesting to see the indicative in verse three. Indicative means the statement, right? What's the statement? It's that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have everything we need. That's the indicative. It's the statement. But then later on, we have here the imperative, the command. And so the indicative is followed by the command. You have everything you need to be godly, he says. Therefore, in the verse we are now in, it says steadfastness with godliness. You have to add godliness. It's a command. It's an imperative. Godliness. Again, it could also be translated piety. We need not just be steadfast, but to be steadfast with the things of God. You can be steadfast and be foolish, right? You can endure things that are foolish to endure. You can hold on to something that is foolish to hold on to. But when you combine steadfastness with godliness, with piety, with the things of God, well, then you are being steadfast with the right things. And this is what a Christian is to do. Godliness, then, with brotherly affection. And this is a word in Greek that we're all well familiar with. It's Philadelphia. It means familial love or brotherly love. As you know, the city of Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. Why? Because Philadelphia in the Greek means brotherly love or brotherly affection. And it's really the love of a family. And this was a prime virtue in the Greek world. Your family was to be your all and everything. But it's interesting here when Peter comes and says brotherly affection or brotherly love or familial love, a Christian is actually called to treat other believers as we do family. And it's interesting that the apologists in the ancient world actually pointed out to this as one of the reasons they were despised. That they would take people that weren't part of their family and treat them as if they were. It was seen as strange. But this is our call. It would have been, as I said, fairly strange in ancient times to have familial love be given to those that are outside your family. 
but as Christians, we are actually called to do this. We call our fellow Christians brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the language of the New Testament. Why? Because they are now part of our family. We are part of the family of God. 1 John 3, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. We are brothers and sisters, and we have to treat each other as brothers and sisters. If someone is in need, we help them. If someone is weeping, we weep with them. If someone is rejoicing, we rejoice with them. And then finally, we come to the end of our list, and we are to supplement brotherly affection with love. In the Greek, this is agape. This is Christian love. This is the love the Father has for us. And in 1 Corinthians 13, it's actually presented as the chief of virtues. In fact, to love God is to keep his commandments according to 1 John 5, 3. And his commandments are summarized as we have been learning in two commandments given by our Lord. One is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the other is to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do we do this? Well, we do it by keeping the moral law. We do this as seen in the Ten Commandments. But notice that love is not a feeling or an emotion. It's in the list of virtues. Love is a virtue. It's a virtue that you can grow in, as we can see. And it's important. It is the chief virtue. And that's why Peter ends our path here. Starting at faith, which is the beginning of the Christian walk, and ending at love, which summarizes everything that we do in the Christian walk. It's the list that we are to grow in. Now, I don't think it's exhaustive, but it shows that we must grow in virtue and that it begins with faith and it's anchored with love. But notice that these qualities are not necessarily foreign to the believer that Peter is talking to. For in the next verse, it says in verse eight, for if these qualities are yours in increasing, well, he does not presuppose that they have them. He does know that it can be theirs and it should be theirs. And in fact, it's not stagnant. It's not something that you fill your cup up with once and that's it. No, it's increasing. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, And if this is true, then there is a promise. And it says this, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible to be called unfruitful is a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing to be called. Think of Jesus who cursed the fig tree for being unfruitful. And if you want to be fruitful, which we all do, if you're in Christ, you want to be effective, well, what will you do? Well, you'll seek and make every effort to grow and gain in these virtues. That's what we'll do. That's what we have to do. And he finishes this section, Peter does, with an illustration to show the foolishness of a so-called Christian who lacks the qualities that we're talking about. He says this, verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Essentially, he's like a man who has chosen to be blind. 
Nearsighted is an interesting word here. Another way to say it would be short-sighted. In other words, they are so focused on the present, they are so focused on the pleasures of the world, they are so focused on the here and the now that they don't understand what is important to the things that matter. That is the future and really the entrance into the eternal kingdom of Christ. So instead of faith in Christ, they look to the things that they can see here and now and they put their faith in those things, in money, in power, in others. Instead of virtue, they seek the pleasures of the world. They don't care about moral excellence because it feels really good to do this sin and that sin, especially when I'm alone. Instead of knowledge of God, they seek the knowledge and approval of man. Instead of self-control, they only care about what happens in the moment without thought of the future. Instead of steadfastness, they are tossed to and fro as a boat in the wind with worry and indecision. Instead of brotherly love, they are suspicious and don't want to help those in the faith. And instead of love, they care only of themselves and being selfish and thinking only of how to seek their own good and not the good of others. To be like this is to be blind to what is important. You can't see. And what can't they see? What have they been forgotten? Well, it says that they were cleansed from his former sins. In other words, they've been cleaned, but they keep returning to the mud and jumping in it. Peter uses this imagery later in the letter again, 2 verse 22, he says this, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. The sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. And while this is describing the false teachers, if you don't have these virtues, you call yourself a Christian, this is essentially what you're doing. You wash yourself, and then instead of jumping in the clean pool on the left or on the right, you jump in the mud pit on the left, thinking you're clean. A quick note about the word cleansing. It's very possible that this has a nod toward baptism. The reason is that cleansing and baptism are so closely related in the New Testament. Consider Acts twenty-two sixteen. 16. This is what it says. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And the reason why the cleansing and the baptism are linked so closely is because baptism and conversion happened so closely in the New Testament. You got saved and you got baptized. It happened so closely together that they saw the symbolic cleansing of baptism as representing the cleansing of your sins through faith in Christ. Why? Because you got saved, you got baptized. So very quickly, if you're a Christian, as in the early church, you should be baptized. It's an obedience to Christ, but it's to be the first thing that happens, the first step. No, baptism doesn't save you, but that doesn't mean it isn't important because it shows what has happened to you and is one of the ordinance of the Lord. And to not be baptized as a Christian is to walk in disobedience with the Lord. But the main point that is here, the main point that we're dealing with in this text, 
is that they've forgotten their position that they're truly saved, if they're truly saved. This is from Tom, Thomas Schreiner. He says this, if members of the church are living immoral lives, they bear witness that the forgiveness of sins means little to them. Those who treasure being forgiven live in a way that pleases God. And this is what he's saying. You're blind to being forgiven. A true Christian who treasures being forgiven will live in a way that pleases God. And this is what we learn. But there is a result that comes from supplementing your faith with these things. And obviously the opposite of what we looked at is true. We will be effective. We will be fruitful. We won't be blind, and those things are important. But there is a more important result, and that is entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've been given the power of God to follow the path of virtue in order to gain entrance into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Point three. Peter now restates his imperative. He takes the previous section as proof as to why he is saying these things. So he says, therefore, brothers... Therefore, is based on everything that came before. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So Peter again shows the effort that it takes. It's not passive. Be all the more diligent. All the more. First thing to note here is that the main verb is to be diligent. That's the main thrust of what he's saying here. Be all the more diligent. This is the main verb of the sentence. So the emphasis is on being diligent. But we are to be diligent to do what? To confirm our calling and election. Now I believe calling and election here are fairly synonymous. What I mean is they mean the same thing. Those who are elected are called. We're not talking here about the general call to everyone to be saved. No, this is the effectual call that saves the elect. Romans 8.30 says this, For those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so the, those who are elect, those who are predestined, those whom are called, it's all part of the same process. But what we're not doing here is confirming our call and election to God. We're not proving to God anything. Okay, He knows all things. God knows all things. What this does is confirm it to us. Confirm our calling and election by growing in virtue. So this is the call. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm, to know in yourself for certain your calling and your election. This is what we're told to do. Confirm our calling and election, as I said, by growing in virtue. Confirm it to us. Then he gives two promises. First, he says, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Well, what does he mean by fall? And again, when you're reading the Bible, it's good to ask lots of questions. And what do we mean by fall here? Does Peter mean that if we practice these things, we will never sin again? Is that what he means by fall? We'll never stumble in that way? Well, we will definitely sin less. But to say that we will never sin again in this life would be inappropriate. What I think is being talked about here 
is directly related to the next line, which is the positive aspect of this line. To fall is to forsake the kingdom of God and fail to enter the kingdom. This is what it means. Fall could be translated as stumble or come to grief. So what I think is being shown here is a stumbling or not making it to the finish line. Thus proving that you were never saved to begin with. To fall is to forsake God and to fall is to fail to enter Christ's kingdom. And maybe you're here today and you're in that process right now where you feel you are. Maybe you're stumbling and you seem poised to fall right now. Your faith seems to be teetering on an edge. According to this passage, what should you do? Well, you need to focus on holiness. This is what you do. When you fear that your faith is about to fall and stumble, you focus on virtue and you focus on holiness more than anything else. Instead of wallowing in self-pity, instead of focusing on the minutia of secondary doctrines, what do we do? We focus on our faith. We focus on our knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. This is what we're to do. Because in doing so, the promise is that you will not stumble and you will not fall. The second promise is the main reason to practice these things, I believe. It's what closes our text. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is how high the stakes are that we're talking about here. The very entrance into the kingdom of Jesus is on the line. But Peter says it not as a warning, but as a promise. He says, if you practice these qualities, you will be given entrance into the kingdom. It will be richly provided. I love the word picture being painted by richly provided. It's a word picture of a patron lavishly celebrating the arrival of a loved family member to his home. You don't want to enter the kingdom by the skin of your teeth. You want to enter as a family member who will come home to a celebration. And that's what Peter is saying. The entrance is into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, where you will be with him forever. What a glorious day that will be. Now, if you want to be a soldier, you need to practice, right? You need to develop your soldiering skills. If you want to be a hockey player, you need to practice and develop your hockey skills. If you want to be a guitar player, you need to practice and develop your Guitar skills. In fact, in the military, they drill into you what you need to do so much that under the most extreme pressure, you will be able to perform. And here we get a similar idea. We need to continue to practice these things so as to get better at them so that we become more effective. Now, this isn't a perfect illustration because we must remember what we said at the beginning. The power comes from the Lord, so yes, there is effort and diligence but that effort and diligence comes from the power that is instilled by God. But we can confirm that we have this power by growing in these things. And in growing in these things, 
we have the ability to follow the path of virtue and to make it to the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the main application of the message is to make every effort, to be diligent in pursuing godliness and virtue. Don't be on the sideline, but put the effort in to confirm your calling and election. Show that you have become partakers of the divine nature and have escaped the corruption of the world, and you will gain the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You will make it to the end, showing that you were saved. We have been given divine power to follow the path of virtue in order to gain entrance into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. What an amazing truth. Now we read and we memorize a text like this and think to ourselves, you know, that's nice. What a nice little passage. Yes, you know, I need to work on those things. Maybe I'll start tomorrow. But where, brothers and sisters, is the urgency? Where is the make every effort? Where is the proof that you are not blind, but that you are focused on eternal things, not the things of this world? And so in response to our text today, my prayer for you and my prayer for myself today is to confirm our callings, to be instilled with the power of God and to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. This is the path of virtue. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you so thankful for our Lord and Savior. So thankful for the kingdom that he brought here. So thankful that you have given us divine power. You have given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And Lord, I pray for those here that are not saved. I ask, Father, that they would put their faith in Christ, have the power of God, and be brought from death to life. We pray, Father, for those that are in Christ, asking, Lord, that we would take our sanctification are growing in these virtues very seriously. That we would make every effort to do these things, to practice these qualities. And Lord, we are so thankful for the promise that if this is true of us, if we're found to be in Christ and have been granted the power of God and such are able to do this, then we will gain entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his precious name. Amen.